Der Triathlon Show 159. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Cyril Schmidt, PhD, on the topic of non-functional overreaching. We'll get into defining that in the interview, so I won't waste any time on that. Uh, but it's an area that uh, Cyril has done a lot of research on as part of his PhD. And he's also incorporating this knowledge in the training platform Gutai, which he's a co-founder of. So listen back to episode 156, where we uh, talked about and discussed, I or actually we heard from representatives of many different training analysis and planning platforms uh, Cyril was one of them. He talked about Gutai, and so you can listen to, to that episode to learn more about his training platform. This episode is all about non-functional overreaching and uh, the science behind that and the practical applications, of course. I have a particularly great personal interest in this topic since uh, I have on at least two uh, prolonged occasions this year during the summer and the autumn been in a state of, of pretty severe non-functional overreaching where I really had... Uh, had reduced greatly reduced performance and couldn't perform at all in training or racing i couldn't even try racing it was no point so i'll talk a bit more about my personal experience with it after the interview so in the case anybody uh, finds that interesting before we get into the interview a big thank you to our sponsors stack that you can find on stackzero.com that's s-t-a-c zero spelled out dot com they make the world's quietest indoor bike trainers. Uh, they are using magnets rather than a resistance flywheel, which makes it completely quiet. And also, there's no wear and tear on the tire. You don't need to bother with having separate wheels or separate tires or anything like that. You, you are always race ready. Just uh, take your bike off and off you go when you want to go out and race or train. It's also very practical in that you can fold it. It folds into a very nice, neat little low piece of bike trainer. It can fit in a backpack, a large backpack if you have one. So you can, so it's portable. And uh, yeah, it's got a lot, lots of great benefits. I am now using the Stack Zero Halcyon, their latest model, which is the smart trainer version. And I really, really like it. Uh, so you can check that out. But if you don't use a trainer at all then perhaps you might want to start out with just more of a basic trainer you don't need the smart trainer functionality which is uh, totally fine then check out the base or the power meter model if you don't have a power meter on your bike i would recommend getting the power meter because it's a small extra cost compared to the base model but the additional training value that you get from having the power meter is almost invaluable i would say uh, but you can get 20% off from any trainer that you decide to order from Stack with the promo code that Show, all one word, all caps on stackzero.com. 
And big thank you to Roka for sponsoring this episode. Roka can be found on roka.com. That's R-O-K-A.com. And they make the finest triathlon wetsuits, apparel, equipment, and eyewear on the planet. They're used by athletes like Javier Gomez, Gwen Jorgensen, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Lucy Charles, and other top athletes in the sport. And they are now shipping directly from the UK and the EU. So those of you who have been in contact with me and asking when that's going to happen that is happening now which means that now you don't have to pay any import taxes or customs custom fees when you buy from roca.com just go to the correct website either uk.roca.com or eu.roca.com or navigate there through the drop down menu at the main website it's easy to find just select the right flag essentially and take 20% off your entire order with the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps so now let's get into the interview with cyril uh, we had to do a little bit of editing at some point due to a bit of uh, a language barrier uh, because uh, cyril is uh, french speaking and at some points he couldn't quite understand me so so we did some editing but i think it should all be clear now post editing but just uh, as a word of warning in case there are some uh, places where the interview doesn't quite flow as you would expect i i think it's clear but uh, well you'll you'll be the judge of that Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Cyril Schmidt, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, non-functional overreaching. Uh, but uh, first, uh, welcome to the show, Cyril. Uh, thank you, Michael. Hello. I'm happy to be here with you. It's great to have you. And can you first start by telling us a little bit about your background in uh, this in this field of research and uh, how how come that you, you have become an expert in, in this topic? Okay, uh, so I start to work on this field five years ago uh, in the in the research at INSEP, the National Institute of Sport in Paris, France. So it was a, a really interesting topic to work on with triathletes because it, it's an overall topic which combines both physical and uh, psychological strains. So I worked to do studies with my colleagues on triathletes and try to diagnose the overreaching syndrome to try to prevent it and the uh, incept just for the listeners that aren't aware that's uh, a big institution and it's very well known in uh, in in the world of of sports really and they do a lot of great research it's it's very basically just a very very credible institution so so it's 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 something that's great to have on your cv as uh, as an academic so so let's start by just simply defining overreaching what is it yeah um, so overreaching, my opinion is that it's a, a step on the fatigue process, the, the overall fatigue process, process, which is related to training. So we have steps before overreaching. Uh, I mean, when the athlete presents the characteristic of acute fatigue. And then you have steps after overreaching, like the overtraining syndrome on at the end of the continuum death, of course. And uh, so when we also talk about functional and non-functional overreaching, so so can you also place those on that spectrum that you described? Yeah, it's, you're right. It's very important to do the difference between these two steps because uh, actually uh, overreaching is an in-between step and uh, at this precise step, the fatigue which is induced can be either beneficial for performance or detrimental. So the first uh, thing 
uh, it's but it's interesting for coaches to do the to do this difference and uh, the, the overreaching uh, the the functional part of overreaching is interesting for coaches the non-functional part is not overreaching so to do the difference between these two steps actually we consider that the gold standard is the performance of the athletes we consider that when uh, that you are in a non-functional overreaching state if you present a reduced performance on a standardized test if not you probably are only uh, in a functional overreaching as the fatigue level is not enough to impact performance even if it is pronounced that's However, that's, that's, that's uh, really athletes, good uh, sorry go on yeah Okay, thank you. So, however, uh, athletes are not able to do a performance test twice a week to monitor this difference between non-functional overreaching and functional overreaching. So now uh, we also know that there exist several differences which enable to know where the athlete is. For example, at the physio level, in non-functional overreaching, uh, we begin to observe changes in heart rate, heart rate recovery, heart rate variability, uh, the level of lactatemia, if you can measure it, uh, the sleep quality, uh, while in general it is not present in a functional overreaching state. So um, a second difference... Can, can, you, give uh, examples, beside, can you give examples with, with some numbers yeah. for those uh, changes in, for example, heart rate and heart rate yeah. recovery? How would it be different uh, if you're in a functional yeah. versus non-functional so, so, it, so the listeners can get some practical examples? Yeah, of course I can. Um, so when you look at your heart rate on a standardized speed, like for example, uh, when you are running at uh, uh, 12 km per hour, uh, you can observe a change that is in general of 5 uh, BPM. So it can go to 2 BPM for some athletes to uh, seven, uh, 7 to 8 BPMs in heart rate. Um, for heart rate recovery, um, it's more pronounced. Uh, so the, the average is more around uh, 10 BPM of difference uh, at the end of the minute where, where you did the, the heart rate recovery. Uh, so um, uh, here the, the range goes from 6 BPM of difference to uh, 18 BPMs of difference. Uh, so these numbers, uh, we observed it uh, on the study. And they were uh, quite uh, consistent with uh, what we can observe on the field. And which direction do these changes go? Uh, I'm not sure that that's uh, yeah. clear. Like, it, do you have higher heart rate when you're non-functionally overreached or lower heart rate? And is that uh, and in both of those situations in yeah. your actual training and in the heart rate recovery? Okay. Um, in heart rate, uh, when you are running, the, if you are in a non-functional overreaching state, the heart rate is lower. Uh, so there are several uh, uh, causes, but the observation is the same. Heart rate is lower, and uh, as I said, it goes uh, in average uh, uh, to 5 BPMs lower. Uh, in heart rate recovery, the... Um, the, the amount of BPM you lose uh, during this minute is higher when you are in a non-functional overreaching state. Uh, for example, if you stop your exercise at uh, 150 BPMs uh, and in you are in a non-functional overreaching state, you descend 
uh, until, for example, 90 BPM, whereas in a normal state uh, of form, you would be at 100 BPM. So the difference is uh, higher when you are in a non-functional overreaching state for heart rate recovery. Yes, got it. And uh, many listeners will have that uh, heart rate recovery function on their GPS watches. It's quite common these days to to see it directly. Uh, and uh, just as a personal example, I, I had uh, this fall about of definitely non-functional overreaching. I didn't need to measure it to, to feel it in my body that it was just too much. But I could also see it, for example, when I was running, my typical very easy running pace is that 12 kilometers per hour that you mentioned five minutes uh five minutes per kilometer and uh and i was running what some of my last runs before i took a break i was running those runs at 110 bpm which is even though i have a low heart rate that's really really low and usually i would have more like 120 bpm at that pace so so I, it was just verification for me that okay this is not good yeah, <laughs> i need to take a break the, the 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 good point to mention here is that it is uh, systematically associated to a higher perceived exertion to a higher sensation of effort because uh, if you progress for example you know that you also can observe uh, this difference I mentioned on heart rate and heart, heart rate recovery, uh, but it is uh, good symptoms of uh, improvement. Whereas in you are in a non-functional overreaching state, you have the same symptoms at the heart rate and heart rate recovery levels. Whereas the difference is that it is associated to higher perceived exertion. Mm, so yeah. the, the mechanisms behind it are uh, different, but uh, you can observe at the heart rate levels the same uh, observation. Yeah, yeah. And just quickly, let's not uh, talk too much about overtraining because clinical overtraining is something that is uh, very rare, very, very rare for, for age group athletes, which is the, the audience of this podcast to, to achieve. You really have to almost be training at a professional level with a lot of hours in most cases to get that. But, but to, to be clear, what is the difference between non-functional overreaching and overtraining syndrome? Yeah. Um, so, Fatigue is process. Uh, so I said it, I think it's a, a continuum. And when you go along this continuum, you will find the same symptoms uh, overall. But three things make the distinction between overreaching and overtraining. First, the intensity of the symptoms. You can present the same symptoms, but they are more pronounced in overtraining. So for example, the levels of, of fatigue, the level of vigor, uh, we find levels which are the lowest uh, for the person uh, when he is a person is in overtraining. So the intensity, then the consistency of the symptoms. Uh, you find the same symptoms, but they appear, they appear more fre- frequently. Uh, you present more illness. Uh, you have more bad nights, uh, a low libido, uh, etc. So the consistency of the symptom is a characteristic of overtraining. And, uh, third, the duration of the symptoms. Uh, so as I said, the deeper you go in the fatigue level, the more you need time to recover. And in overtraining, it can take until years to fully recover. However, uh, even if it is a general continuum, I think uh, uh, we should consider that each function of the body uh, is involved, which is involved in performance, could be specifically subject to overtraining at its own level. Uh, for example, uh, muscular at the muscular level. Uh, when you increase the load, the final step is injury. If you increase, uh, if you push mental toughness, uh, and we know that it is a, a important factor in prolonged events, 
so it leads to loss of lucidity and hallucination and uh, the, you can do a lot of errors uh, on these specific parameters. The same for thermal regulation. The final step is heat stroke, etc. So each time a main function of the performance reaches its own limit, it endangers the athlete and the performance, even if, of course, each of these functions is related to the others. But it's a picture. So when we try to increase the overall load in an athlete at a sufficient level to induce fatigue without leading to overtraining, in fact, it is about how the training how all training is able to adjust the load applied on each function, on each function, and at each session. It mm, is yep, how okay. fast we anticipate each function. Yeah. So, uh, so sorry, yeah. go on if you have something to add. Um, yeah. So, so um, no, the, the, that's the point that I wanted to to say. Uh, I mean, at the end, that training is about periodization, but not of the sessions intensity. Uh, but of the performance-related functions. And we have to take care not uh, of not overloading too much each one of them. Yeah. Okay, so so what about, let's start to move a little bit into some practical applications here. Uh, for example, uh, like you mentioned already, that functional overreaching, it is still part of the fatigue spectrum, so it makes sense. You have to feel tired to get the adaptations and to improve. But how... What are some examples? It's there's no, of course, no like black and white answer, no formula for how to know how long you can overreach yeah. before it becomes non-functional. But are there some best practices for how to how to think about this and and try to get the functional but not non-functional overreaching? Um, so c- could you repeat, Michael, your your question, please? Yeah, yeah. So so what are some tips, some advice that we can give so that for how to try to make your training functionally cause functional overreaching but not non-functional to push enough that you can get adaptations but not push so much that you get into non-functional overreaching okay um so from my experience uh, during several studies uh, where we try to induce non-functional overreaching uh, we have replicated uh, the finding that three weeks uh, of increasing training volume without changing the proportion of training intensities did not guarantee to induce overreaching. Uh, on the opposite, we can find in the literature that uh, three days of competition are sufficient to induce uh, the first sign of overreaching. So at the end, there is no rule when trying to say uh, how many days can I go through uh, this training before being overreached. A few days are totally sufficient if you accumulate several factors that are involved in functional overreaching, for example, higher volume at high intensity plus lack of recovery plus professional stress. Uh, And it's the case for a lot of amateur athletes at some moment of their life. So in general, in normal life, and if uh, you do uh, no drastic changes in training, I would say that 10 days are able to induce non-functional overreaching. And I would say that half of these days are sufficient to dissipate all the fatigue effect. So, uh, Cyril, do you know, or do you have uh, any any studies or or any work that you've done that that has shown roughly how long athletes can typically be functionally overreaching before it becomes non-functional? What's the timeline of overreaching? Okay, um, so during the studies. Uh, 
I, I did at INSEP where we tried to induce non-functional overreaching, uh, we have replicated one finding. Uh, it's the fact that three weeks uh, of increasing training volume without changing uh, training intensities did not guarantee uh, to induce overreaching. On the opposite, uh, we find in the literature uh, data which shows that three days of competition are sufficient to induce functional overreaching. So if if you take both uh, of these findings, uh, at the end, there is no rule when trying to say how many days can uh, the athlete go uh, through, through the training before being overreached. A few days uh, are totally sufficient if the athlete accumulates several factors that are involved in functional overreaching as lack of sleep, high-intensity training, professional stressors, etc., uh, and it is the case for a lot of amateur athletes. Uh, but in general and in normal life, uh, I would say that if you do no drastic changes in your training, 10 days uh, are able to induce non-functional overreaching. And I would say that half, half of these days uh, are able to dissipate the fatigue effects uh, related to training. So, so if you this is this is not a question that I sent to you by the way, but but does this mean that uh, if you do a ten day training block, which uh, includes uh, some high intensity training, but it's a normal training block, it's not you're not racing, uh, then that's typically at that point you start to to reach uh, that uh, that non functional overreaching state, and then you would want to take take five days or so of easier training to get rid of that and then start over is that like a practical application of what you just said no the it is a it is a mean an average uh, i i told here um the, there, there are a, a lot of factors uh, that make these 10 days uh becoming uh fewer or uh, becoming higher uh, I, I said that three weeks sometimes uh, is not enough, uh, are not enough to induce non-functional overreaching, uh, because on these athletes they were well trained, but uh, we only change one parameter, the training volume, and by only changing this parameter, it was not sufficient for some of them uh, to go to non-functional overreaching, uh, so the performance did not change, etc. Uh, on the opposite, for some of those person, in seven days, it was enough because uh, we learned at the same time that these guys, they also had uh, uh, professional problems and uh, family problems which, which increased uh, the overall load on the person. So uh, the 10 days are uh, uh, an average, but he, the range can be very, very individually from some days to some weeks uh so there is no rule okay okay so so we talked about a couple of ways to identify uh overreaching already like heart rate and heart rate recovery uh, yeah. i personally i know that's just the way that my muscles feel you mentioned rpe as well uh are there any other ways that you can use to identify when you are uh, w- when you are entering into that non-functional state yeah the, the factors I mentioned before, uh, they are very practical and they are objective. So uh, heart rate, 
um, heart rate recovery, heart rate viability, uh, it's pretty easy to, to trust them a priori. Uh, you look at the data, you say, okay, I'm in functional and non-functional overreaching state. Uh, I take the decision uh, behind this. But um, uh, I think there is uh, three steps uh, before deciding that, uh, that you have to go through before taking a decision. Um, the first step is uh, the athlete will see changes in terms of sensations. So you, you talked about your muscle soreness. Uh, it belongs to this kind of, of sensations. So the changes in sensation are both at rest, uh, mood, vigor, fatigue, memory forgetting, etc., and at exercise, uh, the pain, uh, the effort, etc. So things seem harder to do, and you prefer stay on the couch than going to take a shower. You prefer say yes instead of making a good argumentation. So it's all of this. It's at the perception level. The first step in the chronology then leads you to the second step, second indicator. And these indicators are the reaction you have. Uh, you are more angry. You are not patient. Uh, you do compulsive buying. You become aggressive. And even you receive bad feedbacks uh, from uh, your friends like, uh, hey, why are you so undesirable? So here uh, you can be helped by other people we help you who help you do the diagnosis of uh, increased impulsivity so first perceptions sensations second the reactions that you have and then only at this step uh, the physio uh, enters uh, in the game so here you see heart rate uh, changes at a given speed uh, like we said heart rate recovery uh, hrv etc so you have a chronology and uh, the, the most important in this chronology is that uh, the more these factors are accumulated, the more likely uh, the athlete should think is uh, at risk of overreaching. Mm. So that is the consistency I meant uh, just before. Yeah. And how common do you think it is for amateur athletes to, to be in a state of non-functional overreaching? Um, so it's quite a quite complex question um, because it depends on what we include behind overreaching. If we consider overreaching uh, as reduced performance plus increased fatigue, so then uh, my opinion is 100% of amateur endurance athletes have already known this. Why? Uh, because outside of training, they accumulate uh, professional stressors. So the reasons of overreaching uh, in amateur athletes could be different from high-level athletes uh, for whom for whom overreaching is mainly related to higher volume. Uh, in amateurs, the frequent activation of the central nervous systems uh, during the day outside of the training also leads to nervous fatigue. And on the continuum of fatigue, it leads to falling deeper in the fatigue process. Uh, I would like to give you an example, uh, which is which I think very interesting. Uh, three years ago, we did a, a study uh, which has been led both by INSEP and uh, the Brain Institute in Paris. And we wanted to know what happened in the brain uh, of halflets led to non-functional overreaching after three weeks of overload. 
and the fMRI data showed a reduced activation of the frontal area of the brain. Uh, that is the part which serves to do complex mental operation. And this was present only in non-functional overreaching athletes and not in functional overreaching athletes. So it was a good finding. But what is interesting is the fact that the results were precisely the same for people who were asked to do a six-hour task in the fMRI uh, similarly to a workday a reduced activation, a reduced frontal activation. So what does this mean? This means that uh, you can have a source of stress that could be different, physical versus mental, but at the end, it includes the same effect at the nervous system level, the same inability to resolve complex tasks, to uh, do a high performance, and the same impulsivity. So ever if the athlete is amateur or professional, we observe convergent mechanism. And that's why 100% of uh, amateur athletes can themselves uh, be or have already known a non-functional overreaching state because they accumulate both physical and mental stressors. But so, okay, that's that's a great a great answer. But if we consider that the amateur athletes they have to go to work, they they have their families and their other obligations that yeah, does cause yeah. stress. Uh, we we can't we can't ignore that. We 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 live with that, and that's that's great. And uh, and training is uh, is for most. It it comes of course and should come after all of these uh, these things. So so if we take that into consideration and. Uh, and realize that amateur athletes cannot train the same way as professionals and only focus on training. How would you answer the question if if we have to accept the fact that we we go to work, we have families, etc.? So repeat the question, Michael, please. Yeah. So so uh, what I'm trying to get at is, uh, does this mean that uh, you think that 100% of amateur athletes should train less mm. so that they would not? Mm. Uh, I guess that it, that's not what you mean, but uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what I mean is that 100 persons have, uh, will, will know or have already known uh, a non-functional overreaching state. This is what I mean because of uh, external uh, training related factors. So I'm not saying that uh, everyone has to uh, decrease his training volume or intensity. Uh, I'm saying that when you the athlete does this, he has to specifically take care of the external parameters, which at the same time can uh, increase uh, the load, the overall load on his organism, uh, the load which is uh, already increased by the uh, the training specificities, and uh, which thus uh, has been to adapted to uh, the other components of the life. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's clearer, Michael. Yeah, a little bit, but but I think that. Uh, so tell me, tell me what is. Yeah, okay. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think here. So yeah. so I'm, uh, I guess from a training perspective, yeah. um, if if an athlete considers whether they train enough or not enough, or uh, yeah. or they should or they train too much, yeah. What what should they think about when they try to make a decision if they can or cannot increase training load or if they should or should not reduce yeah. training load they, they have to increase the training load of course because 
on the continuum of fatigue, you have to go on the functional overreaching state uh, or on the step before the acute fatigue step to uh, induce improvement. Uh, without stress, of course, you don't have improvement. So you have to uh, go in these steps. Uh, what I'm trying to say, what I try to say is that uh, just don't go deeper in the fatigue process. And the steps, the step after is a non-functional overreaching step. And uh, if you increase the training volume, training intensities too high for too long time, you can go uh, far uh, beyond the functional overreaching step. And this could be accelerated by uh, external training uh, parameters. So the athlete, of course, has to go in these steps of fatigue, but at the same time, he has to prevent the, uh, the acceleration of the, of the fatigue phenomenon by trying to recover or decrease the load, which is related to uh, external training factors. Okay, yes, this makes sense. This makes sense. Uh, so um, the next question, actually, I'm going to skip one of the questions that I sent to you because we already talked about that. So we'll jump to, do we know how different types of training, for example, high intensity versus low intensity training, and also different disciplines of triathlon, like running versus swimming, how they impact on your fatigue and how you accelerate on the fatigue spectrum? Yeah, um, so the response is actually quite well known. And we know that both factors of intensity and volume can lead to non-functional overreaching. However, high intensity has been much more associated to non-functional overreaching, while low intensity can, on the opposite, be beneficial for uh, the central nervous system recovery. So this difference is due to both physiological solicitation at high intensity I mean, increased level of carbohydrate oxidation, changes in immune, immune, immune function, etc. And psychological stressors too, because at high intensity, uh, high intensity requires high level of self-regulation in order to push harder and to tolerate pain. And this is precisely why brain endurance training is effective at improving endurance performance, as uh, the prof Samuel Marco has said. So, Yeah. Similarly, on the activity mode, uh, the higher the level of constraints on the organism, the greater the chance, the chances of non-functional overreaching. That's why if you want to be 100% sure that you are going to be overreached, first do running, then cycling, then swimming activities. Um, from my research experience, I would say that sometimes uh, we did not manage to increase the 100% of non-functional overreaching in the the percentage sorry of uh, non-functional overreaching in the population of world trained participants by only increasing training volume it was not enough uh, however we we did manage to do it by increasing the volume at high intensity mm. so so high intensity plus running Uh, are very important factors if you want to uh, increase the load and uh, increase uh, go deeper in the fatigue phenomenon. Uh, 
Mm. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, at least personally, I feel intuitively as well that that's definitely what what causes you the most to move move further along the the fatigue spectrum. And you mentioned there, this is again going off script a little bit, but you mentioned the nervous system recovery, and uh, and that's something that uh, that I've been curious about for a long time, uh, yeah. but I haven't really dug deep into that. But can you just briefly talk about how that impacts? how we should plan training like for example if we do a hard hard workout like a hard interval run how much recovery do we need before we do the next hard workout and can we do a hard swim or a hard bike the next day because i think this is something especially for triathletes it's very difficult to plan training because there is information saying that you should take two days of easy training but then it becomes very difficult to put an effective triathlon program together so do you have any any thoughts on that yeah um it depends how 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 many how much uh, you want to increase the load on the athletes uh, at both at the overall level and at the specific level i mean uh, of course you can do two high intensity sessions uh, uh on the consecutive days um but uh, you have to take care how how will respond the muscle of the athletes uh, so in this situation, you can have a good, uh, a very high increase on the overall load. I mean, on the nervous level. So it will uh, increase fatigue, uh, which is sufficient to induce uh, progress. However, uh, at the muscular level of the athletes, uh, it will lead to uh, an intolerance and the athlete will manifest uh, maybe a too high uh, disruption and maybe an injury. So, you, you can do high intensity on consecutive days. It's not a problem since you monitor how the athlete reacts both on the overall level with uh, fatigue scales and uh, RPE scales and at the local level to ensure uh, that the athlete will not uh, develop specific injuries. So uh, to do this, you have a, you have a, alternative strategies for example to stimulate uh, the athlete at the cardiovascular level uh, without uh, increasing the muscular load you can put it in a heat chamber and uh, we know, we know that heat will exacerbate the the cardiovascular strain so we you will maintain a high level of solicitation at the cardiovascular level and the, at the nervous system level overall without uh, including a high level of constraint in uh, on at, at the muscular level so uh, you have strategies like this that you can apply depending on your goal um it's clear? yes that's that's clear and uh and uh, just also to give like if you are a pure runner for example uh yeah are there or i've seen specific guidelines for example after a vo2 max workout you you should generally recover two days after fresh or before you do the next hard workout or whatever it may be you know the sort of guidelines that you've seen is there science behind that and, and what does it say in the in single sport endurance athletes yeah, yeah, of, uh, uh, of course, there, there is science behind, uh, in general, recommendations are made on averages. That's why, uh, these two days are, guide, are guidelines, uh, because, um, uh, w- when you do a station, hard station in training, for example, 
you you are you induce a high level of constraint at the muscular level, which progressively dissipate uh, uh, 30, 36 to forty eight hours uh, after the session. Uh, so so two days, um, but it does not mean that it could be faster or uh, at the opposite longer on different athletes. So it's an overall recommendation. Um, at the end, uh, the athletes uh, want to adapt his training to his response and to his uh, agenda, uh, as to monitor how how he personally reacts reacts to the previous training and sometimes he could have planned a hard session on the monday and the following session on the first day but uh, he, he can feel that on the tuesday morning he is very fine at low intensity and uh, move his hard session from thursday to tuesday uh, because it will increase uh, the load on these two days and uh, and uh, he will have time to recover in the next days um so all is possible uh, since the the athlete uh, just respect the rule given uh, by his own organism yeah i think those are some really great points there and uh, and as you uh, as you point out it's uh, you don't have to be like if you feel good enough to do the hard session it you, you don't even even if you are not like 100 recovered maybe you don't have to be that for every single session you can get that extra sort of uh of load over those two days but then you have plenty of time to recover overall and uh, and if your body feels like it uh and it, it, if your body can handle it then that can be a good strategy i know for example many ultra runners they do back-to-back really long runs on weekends because that's when yeah. they have time and it seems to work well for yeah. for a lot of the elite ultra runners so of course they're not recovered on the su- sunday after doing a 30 mile run on the saturday but but they get that big load yeah. in over two days and then they take it easier for several days so that they're ready the next weekend to do another back-to-back long run yeah i, I totally agree with you and i, I think the, the complement to this uh, adaptation of training is the ability of the athlete to anticipate uh, the is extra sportive training load. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you and me sometimes have a pretty heavy uh, professional stuff to do, uh, and you have to work uh, long in the day. Uh, sometimes during the night, uh, it impacts how uh, long you will sleep, etc., etc. So, uh, depending on this period. Uh, there is some adjustment to do in the training plan. Uh, and, uh, so it depends both on how you react to the previous training and, uh, how you think, uh, you will react and, uh, how your week is going to be planned in the next days. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, great to, a great note to almost end on because we're getting to to the end of the interview and and i think that's that's been like a recurring theme here that to include those external variables so so i'm actually going to skip a question that i had about the banister model and the training stress balance because i think that uh, it it seems clear that perhaps we can't really use that to predict overreaching because we it doesn't include those external variables Totally. You are totally right. Um, my point on this question is that uh, all the indices uh, you mentioned to me uh, and we discussed, like uh, HRV, TSS, the POMS questionnaire, performance or RP, all have been shown 
uh, to change as a consequence of increased training load and in particular uh, when you are in non-functional overreaching states. Uh, yes, with different sensitivity, yes, with different consistency. Uh, for example, HRV, HRV, we know that uh, we have sometimes uh, inconsistent results depending on the time, depending on the measurement, etc. But um, uh, even if I said uh, at the at the beginning of the discussion that the gold standard uh, is the performance, uh, but it is not possible, and even if physiological parameters can help to do the difference between functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching, uh, we said that subjective values are very important uh, to monitor. So first, I would say uh, use systematically subjective values in complement to objective values uh, because it should be mentioned that we gain in predictability if we couple these values, subjective plus objective. So every time you use heart rate or volume or intensity, try to couple it to uh, subjective values are as uh, sleep quality, uh, humor, fatigue level, stress, muscle soreness. The same uh, in the subjective variables. Some are very interesting, as the one I said, and some are not interesting. Uh, according to the literature, and these variables could be the social well-being, the emotional state, or the auto-efficacy. So make the difference between relevant and irrelevant variables. Once uh, you have identified the subjective values uh, you want to monitor, use them at least four times a week. So it is the, the frequency, the consistency we talked about, it's very important to have uh, repeated measures during the week to have a really reliable uh, point of view on uh, how you react uh, according to a given increase in training. And once you have uh, this, try to use them over several weeks to understand how you react on this measurement. So, for example, you have decided to monitor your training uh, characteristics in terms of quality, in terms of quantity, uh, in a specific period of increased training load. Uh, do it not only for one week, but do it on several weeks because you will learn uh, on these specific variables how you react according to a given stimulus. It's important to not change uh, very systematically one variable when you think it doesn't work or not it's important to learn to work with each variable you include in your training uh, parameters yeah that's that's great and just to to give some practical applications here for the listeners there are most training platforms that you may be using like training peaks or all the other platforms that we just talked about in a previous episode uh, they include usually the opportunity to record your rpe and your feeling of fatigue that sort of thing so so use those to identify whatever you want to to monitor and be consistent in those there are also yeah. apps of course i use hrv for training personally to to monitor my hrv and it also includes a questionnaire with those same sorts of questions with with fatigue level and so that's another way to 
to monitor and that syncs with with these other platforms as well so and and even just putting a a notebook on on your on your desk beside your bed or something where you where you jot down when you wake up in the morning how you mm-hmm. feel something like that but there, there are many ways to do it but uh, the important thing as as you say seems to be to to try to couple them with uh, with the objective uh data from your training and, and see how 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 they affect each other totally yeah totally right so final question what future developments do you think we might see in the realm of uh, overreaching in in the research and in the practical application world um so researchy research is uh, pretty uh, unpredictable so uh, I, I would say that uh, at the technology level um we research is actually trying to build tools tools to enable to have um simple unbiased low cost uh, sensitive and reliable measures uh, for coaches or uh, for athletes directly and it's uh, very complicated because uh, at the moment you can have a uh, specific parameters which is quite uh, efficacy uh, effective like uh, the lactate measurement uh, but uh, we can't have access to this uh, in the every in everyday life uh, and some of those are uh, very uh, uh, expensive uh, or some of those uh, for example like the sun, the subjective measures uh, they are unreliable for some coaches because they don't they don't believe in the athlete response so uh, research is trying to combine all these characteristics like a simple tool unbiased tool low cost sensitive to overreaching and reliable so i think at the techno level it is the perspective Um, at the statistic level i think uh, uh, research is accumulating data and this is really good because uh, uh, in the in the next future, uh, we will be able to to say, okay, this kind of population is more predisposed to overreaching uh, according to the time spent in uh, this activity, this activity, uh, the duration spent in such activities. So um, at the moment, we are accumulating data, which will enable us to do. Uh, um, to do uh, statistics and to do uh, calculation for specific population. And uh, at this moment, this will already be a good point to establish some uh, recommendations and guidelines to say, okay, uh, you are in this, uh, in this case, uh, you spend uh, this time in this activity, so you are predisposed at uh, 30% to overreaching. It will be it will be more accurate, yes, but at the end uh, it will not be uh, yet at the individual level of the athlete. So we will be uh, at an in between step between uh, what we have now and what we should have to do at the individual level. But it will be better. Mm. Good. So let's move into the rapid fire questions uh, before we end this interview and uh, take 15 seconds or less. So be very rapid <laughs> to answer yeah. these. And the first one is what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports or your field of expertise? 
Yeah, uh, so my preferred blog is Gutai, uh, and my preferred um, book is the one of Idris Aberkan, which is uh, Liberate Your Brain, and uh, because it enables to give new perspective on the way we apprehend the body. Interesting. I'll need to check that out. Haven't heard of it. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, free. Uh, crossing the field, applying uh, to the personal practice, like you said, and uh, thinking that we only know little about the body. And finally, who's somebody in endurance sports or in your field of expertise, again, in the research world, that you look up to? Uh, so there is a, a famous athlete, um, a, a German triathlete. I don't remember his name. Um, he did the Ironman of Hawaii last year, uh, and um, he has long hair. Do you? Can you help me, Michael? Which which Ironman did you say? Uh, he did the Kona last year, and yeah. uh, but he did not perform uh, so well uh, because he had trouble in uh, in cycling, if I remember. Um, shit. Um, he has long hair, and uh, he is German. Uh, it's my. Uh, it's uh, long hair. Hmm. I don't know any German athletes <laughs> with long hair off the top of my head. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of our listeners will know still. <laughs> okay. So, so thank you, Cyril. And uh, please uh, share with us where we can learn more about you. And, and also, we heard about uh, your platform, Gutai, in a previous episode. But uh, just quickly tell us where we can find that and, and learn more for the listeners that may not have have listened to that episode, which we'll, by the way, link to in the show notes for this episode as well. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, they can learn more on the platform gutai.training. Uh, so gutai, it's uh, J-U-T-A-I dot training. And uh, there are some references there. You will find the application and uh, some data on me. And uh, I'm will happy to uh, interact with uh, everyone. Perfect. Thank you so much, Cyril. It was a pleasure having you on again. Thank you, Michael, a lot. So that was a really, really interesting interview. I really learned a lot and, and I found it, as I said, because I have a personal interest in the topic, I found it uh, a particularly useful interview that uh, I can actually use in my own triathlon life, not just training, but triathlon life. And... Uh, my main takeaway, really, that I want to stress to you is that uh, there are a combination of stressors from both in training and outside of training that uh, can lead to non-functional overreaching. And make sure that you, you realize how big the impact of those factors outside of training can actually be. And this, I think, is something that uh, I thought I knew, but I didn't do a good enough job in practice, which is what led to my issues. Uh, of course, it's quite evident that we're not all the same in terms of how much training stress, training volume we can handle. Uh, but also consider that for you, this the, the amount of training volume and training stress you can handle will change, can change dramatically when your life situation changes. For example, if you change job, jobs, change careers, which is what I did, or you have kids or other life changes that uh, that have, have a big impact on, on the stress that you have. Even if it's a positive stress, it doesn't have to be a negative stress by any means. My career change is a very positive change, but it still 
caused me to have have these issues, which I I'll now talk a little bit about. Uh, so basically, what happened was that uh, I was injured, as you know, during winter. Uh, so through December, uh, from December through April, December two thousand seventeen through April two thousand eighteen. Did I say 2017, 2018? I meant to do at least. Anyway, so during that time, I was only swimming and biking. And a couple of those months, I wasn't even biking because my knee injury started to affect my biking as well. So so it was in April when I started to slowly get back into running. And only towards the, the later parts of May, I think, is when I really started to be able to do some proper run training and getting back to actually the way that I I would ideally train with with having the the same the frequency of running biking and swimming and almost the volume of biking running and swimming that I that I and my coach uh, we thought that I could handle and would be ideal for me uh, and and it worked really well for for a while I improved a lot but then in July I really started to feel especially on the swim that I was actually it was sooner than that on the swim I started to have problems as early as late may i think right around the time when i started to ramp up both my cycling and the running from post-injury well especially the running because cycling i had been doing already for a while but i started to feel a bit like my muscles were like spaghetti and uh, like i couldn't really do anything i was swimming through jelly Uh, i couldn't really get to any harder efforts it felt like i i was I was stuck in like second gear or something. I couldn't get into third gear or fourth gear or race gear or anything like that. Uh, my muscles just didn't respond. Of course, I didn't measure heart rate on swimming, but I did feel that I wasn't able to really get up to the sort of output that uh, would make me really, really uh, get my breath up, my breathing rate up or anything like that. And I started to... in. The, at the end of june or beginning of july i started to to have these same sort of issues on the bike and the run as well and then it became became more clear as well that uh, i definitely was not getting my heart rate up in the same way so so i was i had to cancel a race that i was planning to do in the mid july and took uh almost a week off not quite a week actually it was only maybe three three or four days they were completely off and then i started training again because i had the important race uh, that on the horizon was the Finnish Olympic distance nationals at the end of August. So I did not, we did not consider it worthwhile to take too long a time off. We wanted to take just a few days off and then see how I responded. And those few days off, uh, they ended up being more than enough because I got back and uh, and after three days off or whatever it was, I did a bike ride and a pretty hard bike ride, a workout with four times fifteen minutes of um, sort of sweet spot intensity and i did really great i had one of my best workouts ever i think so i felt well this is what it's supposed to feel like i'm back on track and and in a way i was uh i i really was i felt good i did uh, those last few weeks before the national championships went really really good it was only really about a couple of weeks of hard training that i did and then one week of tapering and and i had a good performance in the national championships so, so I was happy with that. Then I took a week of sort of a transition period where I was still training, even including some sort of moderate intensity workouts. But, but it was sort of a transition period after that race. And then I had three weeks of hard training before Ironman Qashqai's 70.3, uh, which uh, I won. I won my age group in that and everything was really great. 
And then I had seven weeks until uh, the last Portuguese half-distance race of of the year, which was uh, the national championships. And and I was supposed to do that. I was in my the shape of my life really in after my win in Ironman Qashqai. So I knew that I I would be able to do a really good race if I could do put a good training block together. And it started really well with a couple of weeks of really excellent training. I was. I was feeling that I was performing even better. I was even fitter than I had been before, which made sense because I had had actually not a lot of training before Qashqai's because there were just a few weeks, a couple of weeks of getting back to proper training before the national championships and then one month between the national championships and Ironman 7.3 Qashqai's. So so having those six or seven weeks to work with, I was really positive that I could be in like superb shape for, for the last race. And and it started really well, but then I started to to experience the same sorts of issues, feeling that my muscles were really empty, they weren't responding. I saw decreasing decreases in heart rate, and it all culminated in in a workout, a brick workout where I was um, I had some intervals on the bike, and I was almost bonking even even on the warm up. It felt like bonking, like my. My power was already very, very low in zone one, and and I couldn't keep that up. It felt like I tried to see if I could get my uh, get get my stuff together by by doing those intervals, and I actually somehow managed. It was like sort of fairly easy intervals in zone three. I think I sort of managed to hit zone three, although not quite the target power. But uh, it, it wasn't like a pretty workout by any means. It was. I really knew that that it wasn't right, uh, but I thought, well, hey, I'll give the run a go. We'll, we'll see what how the run goes. And and on the run, I had some race pace intervals, which uh, would have been much harder than the bike intervals than I than I did. So, so on the run, then out onto that, and and I was running at and feeling that well, my legs weren't responding at all. And I was looking at my heart rate. I was running at my normal, very easy running pace, which was five minutes per kilometer. That would be like a high zone one uh, tempo for me. And my heart rate was 10, 12 beats per minute lower than normal. It was at 110 for running five minutes per five minutes per kilometer. And although my heart rate is usually pretty low, I'm 28 years old and it shouldn't be that low. So and I know that it should be in the 120 to 122 range or so for that pace usually, and I try to accelerate and and I only managed to accelerate up to like 445 pace when what I wanted to accelerate to was like 350 355 pace. So uh, I I quit. Uh, I stopped that workout. Talked with my coach and we said that okay we. Probably what happened was that I didn't have enough recovery from that first bout of non-functional overreaching because we only took a few days off because we didn't have time with the nationals com- coming up to do any more than that. So if I had had two weeks off at that point, then probably I wouldn't have had these problems in, in the fall because we did change my training a lot from uh, from after that first bout and I did less training. I did different types of training, less uh less training above my lactate threshold, which I feel is something that really gets to me a lot and I need a lot more time to recover from. Uh, so so I think we did all the right changes, but it wasn't quite enough just because I still had that sort of non-functional overreaching in my body. That I, I hadn't really gotten rid of it. So then at that point, we ended my season. I took two weeks off and uh, now I'm back training again, feeling really, really excellent. But um, 
yeah, we've learned a lot. Uh, myself as an athlete, uh, myself as a coach as well, and my coach as a coach of me, because this is all individual. Like how much you can you can tolerate, and and for me, with changing careers, one year ago working in engineering still, or a bit more than a year ago now, and moving to Portugal, all of these things add up. And uh, yeah, I I do have a very like a lot of hours that I work a lot, a lot of hours, and also a lot of hours that I try to train. So, uh, so it's it's a lot to manage, and uh, and that's things that you need to consider. And I hope that my personal experience here and my example has has helped you with that. But just to give you an example, like I I felt that those two weeks that I took off, once I got back to to training, I was actually immediately performing really well in my workouts. So two weeks, if you take take two weeks off at the right time when you actually need it, it. Uh, it might not be as it's not something that you need to that you should be afraid of if if you need that time off and and I did it as my end of season that I would take time off at some point anyway, so it was like a really good timing in in that manner, but especially since I really needed it because I wasn't responding in training, my performance was really reduced, and I couldn't really get up to the sort of performance that I was capable of that I knew that I was capable of and had the fitness for. So uh, this is getting into a bit of uh, rambling, I guess, but I hope that this experience helps and uh, and this example can can give you some some insights if you experience anything like that now or in the future. So as usual, you can find the show notes for today's episode on thattriathlonshow.com. And if you have comments or questions, if you have or are currently suffering from non-functional overreaching, uh, leave them there and I will be more than happy to to answer uh, your comments or questions there. Uh, click through to the episode description or to the to the episode page and scroll down and at the bottom of that show notes page you will have the comment section. Also check out episode 156 as I mentioned where I interviewed Cyril and other representatives representatives for different training planning and analysis platforms. Cyril talks about Gutai, of which he is a co-founder, and it's a very interesting platform, so listen to that. And make sure that you tune in next week, where I interview Andrew Buckroll, who is the co-founder of Stack, and our topic is heat, humidity, wind, slush drinks, and all of these interesting things that affect your core body temperature, which is critical for performance and for going harder for longer. So that's... uh, an episode that you really do not want to miss. I have recorded it already and I am super excited to bring it to you and it's um, it's a good one. It's a good one. So don't miss it. If you are new to the podcast, make sure that you are subscribed in your podcast app if that's where you listen or on the newsletter if you listen on the website, then you get my emails every Thursday where I announce the new episodes for the week. Uh, so uh, yeah make sure that you are subscribed in those places and if you have been listening for a while already please if you would consider helping me grow the podcast by telling your friends about it that would be awesome and even more awesome would be if you could uh, write a rating and review on your podcast app or on itunes which uh, you don't have to be an apple user to use you can just download it to your pc and uh, I'm really, really grateful. Uh, it's actually the day after Thanksgiving by the time of this recording. So thank you to everybody who has been rating and reviewing in the United States alone. We're now up to 118 five-star ratings, which as far as triathlon podcasts go, go, these are fantastic numbers. So thank you to everybody, everybody who's listening, but especially to everybody who is uh, 
who has taken a minute or two to rate and review the podcast. And I want to read a recent one that is from uh, Trihip, who writes, useful, focused, well-researched show of five stars. There are a lot of informal-style triathlon shows out there, which is good, uh, but you often have to work hard to get to the practical, actionable advice Uh, This show is different. It does a great job of diving quickly and efficiently into technical topics with focused interviews or specific questions. The information appears to be connected whenever possible to research or references. Thanks. Thank you, Trihip. It uh, means a lot to me to to hear that. So I really appreciate your feedback and I really am so glad that, uh, that the podcast provides value for you. Big thank you as well to Stack for supporting the podcast. You can find them on stackzero.com. That's S-T-A-C, zero spelled out, dot com. And you can check out their quiet bike trainers for, and you can apply the coupon code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, which will give you 20% off any other models from the normal base model to the power meter equipped model and through to the halcyon smart trainer model which is the the trainer that i use and ride so check them out and use that coupon code all of the details are in the show notes and the episode description and thank you to roca for supporting the show they can be found on roca.com or eu.roca.com or uk.roca.com for those specific regions and uh, you can get 20% off your entire order, whether it's uh, wetsuits, uh, dry suits, swim skins, uh, buoyancy shorts, uh, swim equipment, uh, sunglasses or goggles, whatever it is. Uh, 20% off everything with the promo code that Triathlon Show, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.